because it is Mother's Day, sometimes, occasionally, uh, we'll do a specific message on Mother's Day and, uh, and Father's Day and other things like that. This year, we chose not to. We were looking at the series and kind of the way the years were, and we said we're not going to do those individual days. Uh, but we did feel like this series, this series for better or for worse, hopefully is encouraging and has been encouraging to all the moms uh, in the room because we've been talking really a lot about the emphasis of the relationships that you have, especially and specifically when it comes to marriage. Now, Don even addressed even more of that in terms of all of our relationships last week. But let me just walk us kind of a quick recap where we are and then where we're going to go today, okay? Um, For Better, For Worse is the name of the series. The theme verse comes, and the text we studied the first week was Ephesians 5, uh, 21 through 33. This is Ephesians 5, 31. This is our theme verse. The scriptures say that a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united. The two are united into one, or as one. And this is a theme, if you will, an ideal and an instruction given about the life-giving thing that God created called marriage. And we often use that term oneness, and I, you know, I don't get bogged down in it, but uh, sometimes there's, there's a great feeling of oneness in marriage, especially during the four better times. Uh, there's not often a four oneness feeling uh, during the four worst times, because usually our spouse is the problem, right? Our spouse is part of the reason it's four worse in our marriage. That's usually the case. And to be honest, one of the reasons this series was such a big deal to us is that 2020 really did wreak havoc on so many marriages and relationships last year. Um, to be honest, like, let's just, if we can be honest with one another, okay, quarantine didn't work out so well for everybody, okay? Lost jobs, lost incomes, changes in the workforce, remote learning, um, social distancing. These were challenges for many, many, many couples. And what I said the first week, which was true, is that a lot of times the dysfunction that might be under the surface that we find habits and ways to kind of get around during the pandemic, some of this dysfunction was uncovered, as in you didn't maybe know it was there, or it was just intensified. You knew it was there, but it just got worse, right? And it's the disconnectedness when you're not on the same page. It's the judgmental attitudes back and forth of of kind of how we view one another. We're not on the same team. We feel like it's opposing. There's disagreeableness, like like the fact that you just can't agree on anything. I know that sounds like a lot of marriages, but, you know, it can be really worse, trust me. Uh, Oppositional meaning that you really do kind of feel like you're against the other person, that they're so off page that you sort of feel like you have to defend or or go to war with uh, your spouse in order to kind of do what you feel like is the right thing to do. That's very oppositional. And parallel agreement, I'll be personally honest, this is the one that I, I hate the most in marriages. It's where husbands and wives sort of feel like, well, you do you and I'll do me, And we'll just move together kind of in the same direction on parallel lines. There won't be any togetherness. There won't really be a a whole lot of oneness, right? We'll just sort of move together. We'll raise the children. You know, we'll do this together, but it's parallel. It's not together. It's not one. Sometimes that works for a while. Most of the time it doesn't. Sometimes the word oneness gets a little Christianese, and I understand that. So when I'm doing counseling or conversations, especially premarital couples, um, I talk about being on the same team, right? This is what I talked about the first week in terms of communication. It really does change things when you view each other on the same team. Go to the next slide. When you view each other on the same team, right? You you, You have different roles and functions, which is fine, but you encourage one another, 
right? That's this oneness. You encourage one another. You leverage each other's strengths, meaning that as a husband and a wife, you have different roles and functions in the relationship. Okay, that's the way God placed it. That's the way God put it again, Ephesians 5. But, but you use those strengths and those weaknesses to kind of overcome one another, and you, you leverage one another for one another. Does that make sense? You judge desire and effort, not performance, right? And I think even Pastor Don read uh, for, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 uh, last week in terms of not holding records of wrongs, right? Like you're, you're judging someone's effort and desire to do better, to grow, to continue within their growth, not just the what have you done for me lately? What have you accomplished for me lately? And there is a unifiedness, right? There's a unity. That's that sameness we're talking about. But, but it's not the sameness in terms of you have to be the same people that think of the same way and, and look at things the same way. My wife and I are great examples. We do not view a lot of things the same way, especially technology, okay? We just don't. We don't. Now, my wife is doing, is, does amazing with technology, but she does it kind of apprehensively, right? Like, she does it because she sort of has to, right? It's not, it's not a love for technology. I love technology. Like, I'm all about it. My wife would just, every time technology kind of rubs her the wrong way, she's ready to bolt, man. Farm, churn the butter, raise carrier pigeons. Like, you know, am I wrong? No, we're not wrong. Like, that's, we just sort of, she has an immediate, like, ah. Oh, and I'm just like, I, I deal with it so much differently because we, we are different. That's true. We're, we're very different in a lot of ways. We're not the same. But there's unity in oneness. That's what we're searching for. And that's, that's what changes when you have a marriage on the same team. I really appreciate all of you who post it on social media with the same team hashtag. You know, what I love about my husband, what I respect about my husband, what I love about my wife. Uh, some of you guys did that. You guys are winners. Well done, right? Many of you didn't do it. You guys are losers. And I'm just, you know, I'm just going to throw it out there. You can, you can still take advantage of that and have a personal testimony online of, of this series and point people back to this good conversation. We are giving you some resources and making some resources available. Uh, part of this series is driven by the book, Love and Respect, by Dr. Emerson uh, Egrich. That's, uh, hopefully you either can get this or you can purchase it at the cafe. We think we have like six books left uh, for like 15 bucks. You can get those or we've got to deal with Amazon. You can go on Amazon and get your own as well. Um, you can do that. Five love languages we talked about last week and a couple others um, that uh, Don, Pastor Don mentioned as well. These are just resources for you. Hopefully they're good tools. We're pulling a lot from the Love and Respect book because of the nature of how much it's rooted in Ephesians 5. Okay, Ephesians 5, which was our theme verse in terms of this idea of love and respect. And here's the, the quick recap. Love and Respect kind of works like a cycle, okay? Kind of like a circle or a cycle, if you will. There's something called the crazy cycle, which, again, he just kind of identifies that without love from the husband to the wife, um, she reacts without respect. And without respect, he reacts without love. Now, it's called the crazy cycle for a reason. Because the definition of insanity is doing the same things over and over again and expecting a different results. Right? So what happens is there's, there's something just, I don't know, culturally or intuitively, if you will, that, that causes her to sometimes feel like she needs to do some things to help him be more loving. And it actually works in the reverse. And sometimes he withholds love and he kind of speaks in a certain way because she's acting a certain way that he sort of feels like he's going to force that and she feels like she's going to force this. And it is the crazy cycle. Round and round it goes. And then we spent time talking about, but there's an energizing cycle to this when you get it. 
that his love can motivate her respect, and her respect can motivate his love. And it can be, which we see in Ephesians 5 in terms of this mutual respect, it can be a beautiful sort of constantly moving cycle that's energizing and life-giving to your marriage. Let's go back and read again that last uh, couple verses of Ephesians 5. We'll start with 31 where we were, our theme verse, Scriptures say a man leaves his father and mother uh, and joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Go to the next verse. This is the great mystery, right? It is the illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Our marriages are the only thing that he points to in terms of the illustration, the example of Christ and his church. That this beautiful relationship of oneness can, can exist. Again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. This is the charge, the final words, if you will, of Paul to the church. It's not a suggestion. He's saying, look, everything we've seen, this is a must do. These are the deepest needs that each one of you guys has in order to sort of see and experience oneness. Now, last week, again, very quickly... Last week, Pastor Don did share that oneness requires the Holy Spirit and the love that only comes from God. And and, and here's why we say this. Without God in your marriage, the best you have are two really well-intending adults committing to one another. Okay, Just committing. Signing a contract, if you will. Vowing. Personal vowing to one another. But oneness comes in the covenant of marriage, which is how God designed it, where God is at the center. And husbands and wives make a covenant with God in marriage to their wife or to their husband. And this covenant has God not only at the center, but if you read, uh, I often read oftentimes in the Colossians 1 in a marriage ceremony where it's like God has the preeminence in all things, right? He's the first in all things. And the reality is, is that when you get married, the best way you can approach your marriage is that God has first place in your marriage. Not just first place in your life, but first place in your marriage. And so oneness, just hear this, oneness is a supernatural thing that only comes to Christians, Okay, this big picture of oneness does require the Holy Spirit. It requires God to be at work in the relationship, to really be able to experience and the love that only comes from God. And then he ended last week with this phrase, that if you both are committed to oneness instead of just happiness, your marriage will be a reflection of the glory of God. When you're committed to oneness, not just happiness, that's counter-cultural because, you know, culture says, oh, you know, just do all you can to be happy. And that leaks into churches, and that leaks, it, leaks into a Christian weird theology that says, well, God wants me to be happy. I can't tell you the number of divorces. I've, I've, I've divorced people I've talked to where, where the end result was, well, God just really wanted me to be happy. And I don't know how to say to them, like, I, I don't think God cares that much about your happiness, to be honest. Not the way you're talking about it. Not the way you're using it as an excuse and a prop for your, for your actions. Like he's so much more concerned about who you are and who you're becoming and the oneness in your marriage because God wants to fight with you to fight for your marriage. And then last week, I loved it because Don got away with not really battling all the things that rise up in us. And he says, Matt's going to do that next week. I don't know if you were here, but that was a cheap shot, right? (laughs) Truth is, we planned it that way. All right, we planned it that way. This is the week. 
This is the week where all the things that rise up in you, anytime you hear Christians talk about marriage or you read about it or you do and you hear and, and, and something comes up, right, because of your marriage and your experiences or your parents' experiences or what you've seen and family, right? But what about blank, right? What about, like, what about him, okay? He's an idiot, all right? I didn't realize it that much when I married him, right? What about her? She's crazy, like insane. And all these whatabouts rise up. What if she does this? What if he does that? What if they take advantage of my love? What if they take advantage of the respect like I have in the past? What about that inappropriate relationship they had at work or online? What about the betrayal I felt when they did this or that? What about the abusive words and behaviors? What about the one night that he was on a trip and the mistakes that were made? What about, and you can just fill in the blank for your worst case scenario. Now, I'll be honest, all, most of those whatabouts all require counseling. I just want you to hear that front, okay? And we have some phenomenal counselors here that meet here at the church, use our church space as their offices. They, they, are, they are part of a, a conversation with Don and I with these counselors to say, please be here for our people if they call you. Um, if you're a partner at Journey, they will oftentimes give you a little bit of, a, of an incentive when you come. Um, but Adam and his team and Lynn, I mean, we have some great counselors here that we've vetted and I personally go to and that we respect. So just hear me. A lot of the whatabouts that rise up when they're significant, I, trust me, you need counseling. Like, go get counseling, all right? Today, I'm going to talk about just the big overall picture when people get to a place in their marriage where all they feel is disappointment. Okay, not, not disappointment like an event, like, oh, darn it, you know, oh, shoot. I'm talking about disappointment when you feel like you have nothing else left to give. You're sort of at the end of your rope. It is not working out. It is not turning out the way you thought it was going to be. Or it's so much worse than you thought it could ever be. And it doesn't seem to be getting any better. That's the disappointment that we're going to be talking about today. I follow... Um, some people online, and this is, a, um, this is a, a pretty famous person who wrote, co-authored with their husband uh, a book on marriage, and they talked about their struggle in marriage. They wrote a book called The Good Fight, um, and I've actually previewed, previewed the book, and the principles are good. Uh, and then just a few weeks ago, I, like I said, I follow him online. Just a few weeks ago, I read this uh, on her timeline. It's time. I fought, y'all. I've loved hard. I've forgiven I've put the work in, I've given everything I have, and there's nothing else to give. It's time. I can't fight any longer. It's time to heal. I'll always encourage you to continue the good fight, but you can't fight it alone. And this story is not a unique story. Even for someone like this who sort of made it part of their mission in life to help couples work through the difficulties in their marriage and yet get to a point where they don't really feel, again, with that disappointment, where they don't really feel like there's any other choice, despite our best commitments to one another. Sometimes you feel like you're all alone. When you were a kid, did you ever remember trying to pedal a bike with one leg? Remember how that was kind of something fun you used to try, right? Am I the only one who did that? No one seems to be responding? Okay. Just the weird Canadian. I don't know what you guys are doing up there. 
No, it was something you tried, you know, you, you were pedaling your bike and you just tried it and you were just like, man, I wonder if I can do it, you know? And that is sometimes the way people feel in their marriage, but they're pedaling uphill, you know, in a blizzard about to die and they're pedaling with one foot because they feel like they're the only ones fighting for their marriage. They're the only one working towards it. Now, I want to make sure, and I, I say this very clearly, don't hear in this message, don't hear that, that, that it's not a reality that marriages end. Don't hear us condemn anything like that. Don't hear us or me you know, tell you that regardless of your situation, you need to remain in a toxic marriage, that you yourself, you know, need to sort of, ex- you know, it makes excuses for the abuse and the behavior, and we don't believe that. Okay, just hear me. We've walked with many, many people through marriages, and I have many friends that part of their reconciliation story, separation, was a very healthy part of their reconciliation story, because sometimes that is what's necessary. So don't hear me say that this is sort of a a broad, like, you know, kind of don't take your individual circumstances in view. Hear me say that we understand that there are steps that do need to be taken sometimes, and we do understand that marriages do end. But I want to talk about the big picture in terms of when you find yourself in your marriage facing that disappointment, rubbing up against that because the crazy cycle, you've been on it for too long, you can't get on the energizing cycle because it just feels like one of you is pedaling and the other is not. We sometimes justify our actions. We sometimes justify our behavior. We sometimes justify our response to that in a way that's really not scriptural. So today... I'm going to walk us through the last tool that he gives you in this the Love and Respect book, which is called the Reward Cycle. And the Reward Cycle looks like this, that no matter what's going on in a marriage, no matter how bad you feel, the four worse that it gets, his love blesses regardless of her respect. And her, go to the next slide, her respect blesses regardless of his love. Meaning that there is a cycle that you can initiate where you choose to love even when it's not reciprocated. You choose to respect even when you feel like that person's not worthy of respect. And it blesses them. And it's rewarded. And we'll talk about why that's called the rewarded cycle in just a minute. But but that is a big deal because, again, a lot of us use our circumstances, use that, that conflict, that, that, that disappointment as a way to justify our response and our behavior when we get there. Most of us are tempted to believe it's just not going to work because you've tried this before. You feel like you've tried to love and, and it wasn't reciprocated. You've tried to respect and it wasn't reciprocated, so it doesn't work. It's not, it's not worth the, the, the time or the effort, but the reality is, is that this rewarded cycle brings hope to that hopelessness in marriage. It brings hope that what we do matters to God. How we respond matters to God. Because again, in the covenant of marriage, He is, he is the one in it with you. Sometimes when people say, I feel like I'm alone, 
fighting for my marriage, I have to be very quick that if it's, if it's not just a Christian marriage, if these are followers of Jesus who are, who are claiming to have a covenant marriage, then I have to say, I'm sorry, but you're not alone. You're saying you feel alone because your spouse isn't on board, but you are never alone as a Christ follower fighting for your marriage. Everybody with me? You're never alone fighting for your marriage. And, and for us, there's so much scriptural principle about how we're to act, how we're to respond, even when it's the four worst times in our marriage, especially to our spouse. When you continue on Ephesians 5 and you move into Ephesians 6, the context of this verse, uh, he speaks to mothers and fathers and then he speaks to servants and slaves. And he gives this call. He says, go ahead and go to the scripture, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people because you know that the Lord will, what's the word? Yeah, the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do whether they're slave or free. And the reason I think this is there is because he was in context speaking to slaves, speaking to servants. But because of this role that he was on in terms of to the husband and the wife and the parents and the children and, and, and the servants and the workers and the slaves, he's like, you need to understand that what you do matters to God and what you do, because you're doing it to the Lord, can be rewarded. It can be rewarded whether you don't have a choice, whether you're a slave, or whether you are living in freedom. So that matters to kids, to parents, parents to kids, husbands to wives. Submit to one another as unto the Lord. This is why Ephesians 5 talks about this unconditional love and respect. And again, we talked about this, I think, the first week. Go ahead and go to the next slide. The unconditional love and unconditional respect. One feels like, oh yeah, everybody wants that. Every husband and wife wants unconditional love, but the idea of unconditional respect is harder for some reason because it's, again, countercultural. Because if you are untrustworthy, if, you're, if you really are not worthy of respect, then there's no reason I should do that. There's no reason I should, I should be the one that has to do that. You should have to earn my respect. But that's not what we see in Scripture. That's not what we see, even as Paul writes that, in Ephesians, even the most dysfunctional relationships can have hope, guys, because each partner has the ability to choose to love and respect the other, even when it's not reciprocated. They have the ability to choose to love and respect the other, even when they feel like it's not working. And God will use it to bless them. God will use it to not only bless them, but as we see, he will also reward you. Because how you do, everything you do matters to God. Every, the way you act and your attitude matters to him. Nothing is wasted, right? We sang that this morning. Nothing is wasted, no failure or mistake. He does a work in it. 1 Peter 3, this is where Peter speaks into the power of what this looks like. He gives a couple examples specifically to the church. He says, in the same way, the wives, you wives, must accept the authority of your husbands, though even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without words. Now, this is specific to, again, the church where women are talking about the fact that, well, my husband's not a follower of the way. My husband's not believing or trusting in the good news. He's an unbeliever. 
And Peter says, yes, but the call for you to act the way you are supposed to act is still there. It's still on you. And the power of that is that it has the ability that even through your life, it will speak to them without any words. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, they will be won over. No, too far. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Now, let me make it clear. Wives, especially in this case, wives, you do not, you do not win over your husbands. Okay? There's no wife in here that can save their husband. That's unsaved. You are not the Holy Spirit of your husband. Matter of fact, that's just a healthy thing for all of us just to acknowledge, okay? Even healthy relationships. Husbands, you are not the Holy Spirit for your wife. That's even another great way to say it, all right? You're not the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say they will be won over, but this won over is because God will win them over. Through your actions, through your testimony, through your choice to bless them with love, to bless them with respect when they are not necessarily worthy of it. They are not following God's law. They are not following God's way. He says there's power there. Because of God working in and through you. Now he goes on to say to the husbands, down in verse 7, he says, in the same way, husbands, you must give honor to your wife, to your wives, treating your wife with understanding as you live together. All right? Treating them with understanding. This is what honor looks like. Now he goes on to say, she may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift marriage, this God's gift of new life, this covenant, this marriage. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. Here's Paul again talking about the power of what's at work when you do what God's called you to do. And now this this aspect of being weaker is primarily driven because he's saying, men, you have the ability, and this is in most cases, in most marriages, especially at the time, he wasn't making excuses for it. But you have the ability to force your way, whether that's physical, whether that's by intimidation, whether that's because in this day and time, the men made the money, the men had the stature, the men had the rights, women had nothing. He says, you have the ability to force your way. You have the ability to, to force that, your, your, your own opinion. You can do it by intimidation, by, by, by physical force and abuse, by emotional words. He doesn't excuse that. He says, No, if you don't honor her the way you should, if you do not treat her the way you should, even though you could force it, that there's actually a consequence to that. That God might hinder your prayers. That may not sound like a big deal, but I can promise you, any man that's in the room trying to pray for what's going on at work and calling out to God real quick because of something that happened and crisis hits and you're not treating your wife the way you should be treating her, I take that consequence pretty seriously. That there's, that there's a possibility that those ears will not hear because of how you are acting, how you are responding, how you are treating her. God has this power, the supernatural power and ability to bless, but he also has the ability to work through the marriage, even when it's dysfunctional, even when it's not perfect, to be able to see his hand, his covenant, his work in marriage. Again, we make a lot of excuses. And this is why sometimes, even before separations or divorces, you know, to be honest, 
This is the case a lot of times in churches. No one knows the marriage is in trouble because you're not really doing life with people at a level that lets them understand just how much trouble your marriage is in. You're unwilling to, to share that, you know. You learn in the South, you don't air your dirty laundry, right, out in, you know, with other people. You don't let them know what's going on. The problem is, is that when disappointment is there and it's finding root in your marriage, it can start to get nasty. It can start to get really unloving. You can start to see a lot of unwillingness to serve one another and treat each other well. You can even begin to see a lot of unforgiveness before you ever, before it ever explodes to the surface. And your friends around you go, oh my gosh, what's happening? Why is, what, we didn't even know. We didn't even know. And that, guys, that's, a, that's an issue. Because again, we, we will, we will use how someone is acting as a justification for our response. But I want you to hear this. This is a principle from Dr. Emerson. My response is still my responsibility. Because that's what we read in Scripture. My response is still my responsibility. It does not excuse someone's behavior. It doesn't excuse the way they treated you. It doesn't excuse what's happening in the marriage right now. It doesn't even excuse your role in how, you know, how it's gotten to the point that it is. But it doesn't really matter at any point. You can make this statement and it's still true. My response is my responsibility. I can't control whether he loves her. I can't control whether she will respect him. But how you respond is always your responsibility. It's always going to be your responsibility. You may feel justified. You may feel like you got, you know, you were totally on the right to say that, to nip that, to throw that one-liner out, to say that cutting word. You may think you were totally fine. But just hear this, guys. You're your response is always your responsibility. My response to my wife is always my responsibility. And I, if I put it on her, I'm a coward and a fraud. Because it's not, I can't control what she does, but I can control how I respond. This is why later on, after he gave the charge to the husband, he gave the charge to the wives, he, he goes on to charge the church just across the board and he says, First Peter, Peter tells the church, I don't want you to repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a, what's the word? Hmm. We don't like that at all. Right? I don't want you to give evil back for evil. I don't want you to re respond because you feel like you're justified in that response. I want you to pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do. And he will grant you his blessing. Doesn't that sound like a reward to you? Doesn't that sound like a reward to you? Then will you pay that back with a blessing that you can actually receive his blessing? Jesus made a statement at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that has always bothered me, okay? Because it's just, it's just, it's so simple and it's so at the core of reality in terms of what he's calling us to do. Right? He goes on and says that if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? What do you want, a cookie? Right? Like, how hard is it to love people that love you? 
Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. He says, if you love only those that let, let, oh, sorry, keep going, go to the next one. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you any different from anyone else? This is him talking about loving our enemies. Guys, even if, even if you're not on the same page, hashtag same page, with your spouse, even if you really think that they're the enemy, even though they are not the enemy, even if things are so bad and the disappointment of your marriage, it will never justify you responding in a way that's ungodly. Never. Your response is your responsibility. Don't pay back evil for evil. Pay it back with a blessing. You know? The real work comes in, in this reward cycle, because it's not being reciprocated. Because they're not being kind in response to your efforts. Because they're not being loving in your response to, to, to the respect you're trying to give. And sometimes it could just fuel and feed the disappointment. Sometimes it can just fuel and feed the fact that, oh my goodness, this is not working. I have nowhere else to go. But hear me, Christ follower, if your marriage is founded on Jesus Christ, if he has the preeminence in your life and the preeminence in your marriage, you are not the only one fighting for your marriage. You are never, ever alone. I want to give you, sometimes people give the example of Hosea and Gomer in the Old Testament. And it's sometimes used out of context. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to even put it on the screen for you. But the reality is, is that there was a time, a prophet, that was called to marry a prostitute. Like, Gomer was a prostitute. And he called Hosea to marry her. And he told him, listen, listen, Hosea, it's going to be a picture of me and my love for Israel. Now, he did it. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that it, just because God told him to do it and it was a picture and an illustration for us that it was easy because Gomer continued to do what Gomer was going to continue to do. And she continued to stray and she actually left him, slept around with other men, began, actually became a slave again. And later on in Hosea 3, God comes back to Hosea and says, guess what? I want you to go get her back. I want you to go take her back. And he had to actually pay and do the ritual, the custom to, to restore her to being a free person and then took him back, took her back into his home. And that, that sometimes is used as a way to kind of guilt couples, kind of guilt Christians into, you know, the worst case, you know, in, infidelity and adultery and, you know, the worst case scenario that you need to be like Hosea and you need to be, you know, that's sometimes used as guilt. I'm not saying it is guilt, guys. I just want you to hear this in terms of the power of God, okay? Is it possible that even with infidelity and adultery, that you can reconcile a marriage, that you can work your way back from the worst possible betrayals of your heart to a place of health, an energizing cycle of marriage and love and respect? I'm telling you the answer is yes. I'm telling you there's, there's couples in this church in the room right now that that's their story. Was it easy? No. But it's possible. But it's only possible through God. It is only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Paul says it this way in Philippians. When you experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds. 
His peace, this peace that doesn't really match the circumstances, can guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus, as you place him first in your life, as you're trusting and putting all your confidence and assurance in him. Like There's a peace that comes with that. And in marriage, especially in the disappointment, especially in the four worst times, guys, there's always hope. There's always hope. Now, do marriages still end? Yes. Does God extend grace and forgiveness and and restoration? And we've seen beautiful things come even after that? Absolutely. Because that's who God is. Because God can, because God is able. But when you hear this and when you, when you understand his word, you have to remember your responsibility. That even if you're in a marriage and it's, and it's moving that way in the disappointment of your life, you feel like there's nothing left, you're struggling with what else to give, you're struggling with what else to try, I want you to know what's possible. I want you to know what's, what God is able to do. I want you to hear about that peace that passes the understanding of your circumstances that can guard your heart and can guard your mind and move you to a place of remembering, remembering that you, just like the example of God through Hosea and Gomer, that God pursued and loved you even when you rejected him. That God pursued and loved you even when you cheated on him. That God pursued and loved you even though you rejected him. I think last week, Pastor Don told you, if you weren't here, I'll give you, I guess I, guess I can announce it. If you weren't here, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, they've had a very busy week in the Gentry household. Matter of fact, this past weekend, Kayla graduated with 85 honors or something. I don't know. It was crazy. It was a lot of honors. Kayla graduated like big honors. Vanessa and Karina, in the last few weeks, both got engaged. Okay? Both getting engaged. Right. And uh, now the best part about, you know, living life with Pastor Don the past eight years in our office is I get to see him parent. I get to see how he's kind of parented his girls, all the, all the successes and all the failures. He's pretty honest about that. But even in, the, especially in the last couple months, when Stacy and Don were kind of recognizing what was on the horizon for their daughters, we had to have some really great conversations. And I won't forget the time in which, you know, Don was getting ready to have these meetings with the boys, Okay, where he knew they were going to ask his permission to marry their, you know, his daughters. Now you might think that's old fashioned, but I don't care. I love it. Okay, I love it. Don, yeah, preach it. That's right. <laughs> da, Pastor Don, if you know him, he's pretty intentional, and I'd already knew that he was. He sort of had been working on a list of questions to ask these boys. You know, and I'll be honest. If you're not doing it as dads, you should. This is a question. I'm going to get ready to introduce you to a question that I've already adopted for any joker that thinks he's going to marry my daughters. <laughs> this is a question I'm going to ask. And this is when we were talking about this. This is after he had these meetings. We were, you know, I was asking him. I was like, well, what would what, you say? What would you ask? What, how'd they answer? And, I, and he asked this question, and both, both young men answered. Um, I heard Don share their answer, and then I was so moved by those answers, I reached out to Kishan, I reached out to Jacob and I said, hey, I want to share your answers with the church. I hope it encourages you. But here's the question, right? How do you plan to love her when she is unlovable? This is a dad who loves his girls. They are the apple of his eye, looking at boys, young men 
We're going to marry them. And he looks at them and says, yeah, oh, they're not always going to be lovable. I got news for you. And he said, how do you plan? Do you see the word plan? How do you plan to love her when she's unlovable? Because that is the call of them, to love. Here was one response. Keyshawn said, first, I'm going to remember my why. God answered my prayer when he brought Vanessa to me and when I fell in love with her. Second, I want to exhibit the type of love we see in 1 Corinthians 13. This was his response. He said, I want to remember my why. It's a big deal for him. This is part of his life. He, he wants to remember the why in his life so that he can go back to the root of who he prayed for, who he asked God to bring to his life, and all of a sudden Vanessa showed up. And the way in which he wanted a relationship to look, he fell in love with her. So he tells Pastor Don, this is, I'm going to rem remember my why. And I want to be able to express the love that's in 1 Corinthians 13. This was Jacob's response to the same question. Pray. <laughs> I asked him a couple weeks later. He said, pray. This was my gut response and remains my response after much more thought. Humans are broken. We will hurt each other. Marriage is a reflection of the holy relationship between Christ and his church. Keep going. Marriage is beautiful. Marriage is hard. God loved us when we were unlovable. When she is unlovable, I will ask Jesus for strength and repent again and again and again and again. Isn't that great? Oh, you can be jealous. They got some rock star guys going to join their family. But I, I, here's what I'm going to close with. I don't know if, have you ever asked that question of yourself? Have you ever intentionally even had to think through, how do I love her when she's unlovable? How do I respect him when, if he slips back into this behavior, if he, when he acts this way? Like, have you, have you ever thought about that question for yourself? I'm just telling you, as long as you're married, we're 27 years now, and I love her more today than I've ever loved her before in my life, but it doesn't mean that our life was easy, and it doesn't mean that our marriage has been easy. The, the, the whatabouts, the but whatabouts, are always going to come up. You know, they're always gonna they're always gonna be there. But what about this? But what about when they do this? What happens? What happens if this happens? What about this? But I want you to also remember that how we respond matters to God. My response is my responsibility. Nothing is ever wasted. Okay? Your love for her, it's not being reciprocated, guys. It's not wasted. It blesses her, and it will be rewarded. Ladies, the respect you give, whether you feel like he's worthy of that or not, whether he responds unlovingly or lovingly, blesses him. And it will be rewarded. It matters to God. I hope that none of you have to experience true, full disappointment in your marriage relationship. We hope and pray that, as we said in the first week, the journey, you couples would be, your marriages would be examples of God and the relationship that God has with his church to the world. That's our prayer. But we understand the reality that it doesn't always happen. We're here for you. We have counselors here for you. Please take advantage of these tools, these resources to pour into and to have your marriage return to that for better time. Let's pray together.
Father God, thank you for the challenge of your word to call us to action and to call us to accountability for how we respond. Um, there's a pass in our culture for responding ugly when we're when we're when someone speaks to us ugly, to respond nasty when someone's being nasty to us. There's, there's sort of an acceptance of these things. And, there's, and then there's an acceptance in that even in the marriage. And God, we just know that that's not what you've called us to. Help us remember today that our response is our responsibility and that we're never alone. We're never, we are never alone fighting for our marriage. That God, you are there. If they are Christ followers and they have placed you in their marriage, God, and put you at the center and the forefront of their marriage, they're covenant with you. I pray that you would continue to give them strength and reward them for everything that they choose to do, even when it's countercultural, even when it's counterintuitive, to live by your word and to be rewarded for it. I pray, God, for the ones that are struggling right now, that are beneath the surface, no one in their life, no one in their family, no one in their small group, no one in the church knows that they feel completely exhausted and completely empty and they don't know if they're going to call it quits or not. God, I pray that you would begin to work in their marriage today. Bring people in their life. Let them take the tools and the counseling that is available to them to be able to work back to a healthy marriage and to the oneness you've called us to. It's only by your power. It's only by your grace that we're able to do this. In your name, Jesus.